0: Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast
1: that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today we have a guest, Pauline Vicar, who is the co founder and executive director of Irini Global. Hi. Welcome to the show. Hi. I was hoping for the people who may not have heard of it, if you give us a brief background on Arini and what your role is there and a little bit about the group.
2: Yes. So it all started with the simple realization that the world is quite complex at the moment and there are so many things happening and it's kind of changing very quickly. And so one stakeholder in the fine wine ecosystem might not – be able to fathom all those changed and to understand everything which is happening and how to react and adapt to that positive or negative change actually. And, and the different forces that do have a power to impact the future of fine wine. So that's, 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 the starting idea of Arini of Global. And we started with a think tank format to answer those questions, like how can we do to actually understand the change and how can we do to make sure that we are armed with the right kind of information and insight to, to react and to adapt and to make sure that FineWine will still be here in a decade. Um, so the, the first thing that we've implemented was a think tank back in 2017 on the original idea of Nicolas Rollet, who is the owner of Chen Bleu, an estate in the Ventoux region in France. And we've done two or three years of think tanks, so gathering experts, feeding within and outside mm-hmm. of the wine world. who's. We think the world is so complex. We need some help from outside, some from astronomy, finance, tech, geopolitics, fashion, luxury, in any kind of understanding of that word, so that we can understand the type of trends that are affecting them and how potentially it has to impact the, the future of finance. And after three years of running think tank exclusively we thought that he, it was a good start but maybe not enough so that's when we founded the Rini Global in 2018 which is now a research and action institute dedicated to the future of fine wine so basically our vision is to inform inspire and empower those invested in the future of fine wine and we work with three steps so the first step is understanding the world in which I'm living in, understanding how it impacts, or the potential it has to impact the future of fine wine. And the last thing is, what can I do about it? And action, and you know, help help the different stakeholders to implement action to adapt to those change.
1: So uh, we're going to talk a lot about. Fine wine. I was wondering if we could start with a, a basic definition of uh, how you've processed fine wine, because I think that will help set the framework for uh, the tier of wine we're discussing.
2: Yeah, it's very important definition and one that I've spent three years trying to trying to define what fine wine is, because of course there is there is no definition of fine wine, and the wine the one we came out with. Is nothing but a working progress because it's evolving also very rapidly. Uh, maybe the first reason why we need a definition of fine wine is that we believe, without being too alarming, that there are some forces of change that do have the potential impact to negatively disrupt while well the fine wine. We've seen tariffs, for example, and the the trade and the global geopolitical environment, but also what's happening in some sectors of the finance and how some groups now don't want to invest in alcohol anymore. We've seen the moderation movement growing bigger and bigger. And we really believe that having the collective definition of fine wine is something which is needed, you know, to have more. What are we talking about? Who's talking about that? And and, and so people can agree and act and have more, more power in the action. So basically we started defining fine wine four years ago. We, we started by asking 200 members of the trade what, what what was fine wine for them and some collectors as well, some consumers as well. And what emerged from those 200 definition was three things. So basically to be categorized as fine wine, a wine need three things. The first one is a set of objective qualities. So it's all about harmony, of course, needs to be free of any kind of default, but needs to have length, needs to have a potential to age. So that's the first thing, how the wine is balanced and complex and can age. Then the second thing is a bit more esoteric and it's, it's of course, more subjective, but it's the capacity of the wine to stop time. So a bit of a 9-11 kind of effect. You know, everyone remembers where they were on nine eleven and what they were doing. Well, fine wine stops the time for you. You know, it was 1978 and it was Christmas Eve and I was with my granddad and he opened that bottle of wine. And I can remember exactly the flavors about it. So that's the capacity of the wine to give you strong emotions and the last one which on a personal level I actually didn't really anticipate it was the relationship with its maker so it's a bit like art it's the intention to be a fine wine a wine needs to have been made as a fine wine every step of the way like the winemaker has to decide first to do a fine wine because all the decision he or she is then going to take along the way is going to be for that vision of fine wine. And in that sense, that's the um, expression of truth behind a fine wine. And that's authenticity. I know that's a a word that we use quite a lot now, but at least that expression of truth and what it means for the the winemaker.
0: So it's more made versus produced. Yes. The, The stopping time one is interesting because... That's true, and, and wine certainly has the capacity to do that, but I would think that's a very small, very, very small <laughs> segment of wines that are able to stop time.
2: Well, this fine wine is a very, very small segment of wine, like yeah. period, regardless of the price points that you take. If you, I mean, in in the UK, and please don't quote me on that because I don't have the latest number, but I think it's 70% of the wines that I bought are around five, you know, the average. Price is five pounds sixteen in, in in the UK, so that is definitely not fine wine by any kind of definition. Again, nothing wrong with those wines, just not you know not fine. And so we try to put all those three dimension into one written definition, and it gives something like a fine wine is complex, balanced with a potential to age, so drinkable at every stage of its development a wine that provokes emotions and wonders to the one drinking it while reflecting the expression of truth intended by its maker and which is sustainably produced. And that last part on sustainability is the latest addition that we've added to the definition of fine wine last year because that was, you know, collective agreement that there needs to be, you know, an element of sustainability that fine wine can't just be mass marketly produced with no interest on the environment and the people making the wine. That makes sense.
1: Yeah, that realization that it's an agricultural product and it has to not destroy where it's coming from. Yes. I'm curious, you you didn't, I was expecting you to go into like a price segmentation. You didn't mention price at all. Is that a factor or could, could there be less affordable wines that Still resonate in fine wine, or sorry, less expensive wines that still hit that that definition.
2: So we didn't talk about prices because first prices don't make they're very difficult to compare internationally. So you know, a, a fine wine with fifteen euros in France, you don't get the same quality of wine within fifteen dollars in the US. So it's quite <laughs> difficult to compare. Then because again, fine wine is very difficult. I mean. If you take that definition, a wine that can gives you emotion can have a variety of price. and also. But if you also take the part of the definition that says that the fine wine needs to have the capacity to age, then it it narrows the bracket again. But I guess the price point at which each of us are going to feel an emotion with wine is going to be different. And the style of wine, we had the big discussion about natural wines or those types of wine. And if they do, and if they are free from default, if they have the capacity to age, if they give you emotion, and if they have been made as the best expression possible by the maker, then by of course this, I don't know, $25 natural wine is a fine wine, at least within that definition. And for the study, when we do study or when we have to ask, collectors or consumers or when we have to compare regions, when we have to go back to price, we have a segmentation for price as well. And and the latest, I mean, the, the definition that we took for the study that we are going to talk about, we we, we had to have a price point because we needed to compare apples and oranges. So we usually start at 30 euros X seller. So again, you have to convert that in your market. And it's not retail price, it's not restaurant price, it's the price at which it leaves the estate with a commercial price, not the B2C price and not a B2B price. So we've got that 30 to 150 first bracket, that 150 to 450 euros X and of course, without any taxes, and and 450 plus. and basically that was that was a price based on the negotiation price in Bordeaux. So, what it makes sense for that place bottle Bordeaux in terms of in terms of price points.
1: And so, uh, what are some of the deliverables of the Think Tape or or Institute for for the people that are funding it? Essentially, like what are what are some of the main outputs that the group makes? Yeah.
2: Well, I guess. What you can find joining Irini and joining us are discussion platform first, conversation platforms with your peer and your peers, sorry. So having the possibility to think with people of a high caliber and high expertise and people that complete your thinking in a way. So one of my main job is really to work on that of experts. So they can be people from the same part of the trade than you. They can be winemakers or retailers, but from different countries so that you can share good best practices. They can, they can also be experts from up or down the line of the supply chain. So they can be, we work with journalists, winemakers, distributors suppliers sums, so you can understand the impact that one decision that you take can have further down the line so that's the first thing really have the possibility to stop what you're doing and take two or three hours to come to an online roundtable or a physical roundtable when we can organize them and discuss about a question that is key to the future of fine wine and then we publish quite a lot either white papers reports because we do classic research as well when we're going to explore quite deeply on a topic and then we publish reports and white paper about that and then throughout the year we've got loads of articles that we published and like smaller events that are you know accessible to everyone we've got a panel every month we've done you know October was about the future of education September was about how is the wine trade prepping for the last quarter of 2020 and how to finish strong. We're going to explore the notion of in this together next month and what it means to work in a collective and in the fine wine world. So all of of that, I guess, uh, I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah. One of the white papers you put out talked a lot about the fine wine consumer uh, I was wondering if we could dig a little more into that. What are some of the unique attributes of the fine wine consumer versus, like, the average wine consumer?
2: Well, again, so in in that study, you will have to refer back to the price tier system that it, that just explained. So that will just refer to those those wines in particular, and maybe the context of the study. So that's a study that we've launched with Mestrezat, who is one of those négociants in the in the Place de Bordeaux, and also had the same realization than us that the world was changing. Really fast. So, we needed more information to understand the consumer. And basically, what we thought so, how we worked, and that's a study that we do every year. So, I'm currently doing the 2020 version of that study because for us, it's also how to see the evolution of the fine wine consumer. And how so, we ask a lot of collectors around the world and we interview them. And basically, my take from last year was that fine wine consumers are. Same, same, but different than, I'd say, every wine consumers now in the way that they are unique. They want to be considered as human being, being unique. They want to be treated as on a one-to-one relationship. They really want to be considered for their individuality. They are very, very curious. So the time where you could sell anything to any rich people because your wine was the most expensive in the planet and you were dealing with people that had nothing, that had no clue with what you were selling is over. Like all over the world, they are super, super curious, but they are also super, super well-educated. They know the price by heart of any vintage of Bordeaux. Uh, They know the trading price of that. Uh, They know the scores if they are interested by scores. They will know the tasting notes more than a master of wine student. Like they're really, really into the information. In how they differ with a normal wine consumer, is they are also international. Like we're talking about the super wealthy there, the people that can afford the four hundred and fifty plus bottles. So that's not a large crowd around the world, and they are very international. They are originally from a country, but they have houses all around the world. They travel a lot. They are among those who are still traveling, even in lockdown, because they have the mean to do so. They are very demanding. Again, I think that's a trend that we can see from every wine consumer, but they are very demanding. They're very happy to pay the highest price, but they have to have a certain level of service. They are super loyal. That was an interesting finding. They are not loyal to the wine but they are loyal to their merchants and to the people they buy wine from. Because trust is super important for them because of course they've got a lot of money to spend, but they don't want to spend it with just anyone. And they, I mean, some of the consumers we're talking to, they, they have been dealing with the same wine merchant for 20 years. It's the wine merchant that got them into wine and they are still the wine merchant. They are, you know, spending thousands of pounds or euros or dollars every year. So they're very, very loyal to to their wine merchants. They have several. They have a, ma- a mix and match depending on their interest. They're super loyal if, if you're not messing up that relationship with them. Very price aware. As I was saying, they know, again, they could be Master of Wine student when it comes to that because they, they really know their stuff. And they are still very masculine. They're getting younger and younger. So that was a, a, for me, a nice discovery. And they are younger in Asia than they are in the UK or in America or in the US, the percentage of women is growing, but it started from nothing. So it's still very small, but it's growing. Some of the actors we've interviewed estimates that it's around 15 to 20% of of their clients that are not that are now female, that highest price point, and they see it growing. So,
1: so I'm curious on the, you've, you've defined kind of like the fine wine consumer and the attributes at a global level in terms of the unique characteristics that you, the unique traits that you see for this type of consumer that is uh, ubiquitous. I'm curious though, it is that, Become dialed in or changed on a per region or country level. Like do you do you see slightly different attributes that if you wouldn't build a profile by region or by country, that you would build it slightly differently?
2: Well, we we've tried to do that and we've tried to think how those profiles could, could be associated with region depending on the insights that we had. So basically we see four different, but also just to be clear, that's also the, the markets that we've studied. So all the insights that we have come mostly from the US, the UK, France, um, mainland China and Hong Kong. So we've got very little data from, for example, South Africa or Brazil or Australia. So we are, we are talking about those, those markets mainly. And this year we are extended to Australia South Africa Brazil and and new emerging countries but basically we've seen a profile which is western or ages regardless of their age coming just from the western world which is mainly west you know west western europe and the us and you see two profiles there the adventurous or the traditional and they can have the young can be traditional the younger can be traditional and the older can be adventurous it really depends they're addicted to knowledge and discovery and sometimes it's like really addicted. They got hooked by wine because of taste, but also that learning aspect for them is super. And they answer that competitive mindset about knowledge, like they have to know more than the others. So they collect information the same way they collect wines. The use of internet is really interesting throughout the category, but they use internet and wine to reviews, to review check, to check price and ratings mostly when, when they are in this category. And we've got this nice, <laughs> I don't know if it's nice, but we've got that comparison that, you know, one Italian client for a wine merchant is 10 French clients and one Russian client is 100 French clients in terms of uh, how much they spend. We don't have the US in that comparison, but of course the US will be closer to the Russian client in terms of how much he or she spends. Then you've got the younger internationals, so what we call the millennials. And when it comes to that... Segmentation of age and this level of wealth. It seems that there's no region regionality. I mean that millenni- wealthy millennials share the same profile regardless of where they are when it comes to fine wine. They source wines everywhere around the world. So when that they've got a flat in New York, a flat in Paris, and a flat in Bangkok, and depending on where they are going to be, they have wine merchants in different regions, and they will have their wine delivered where they are going to spend their holidays. They are super curious in terms of regions and style. For example, what's interesting is they choose the restaurants depending on the sommelier, or well, at least that was pre-COVID, but they would follow sommeliers on Instagram and and depending on you know how they establish links with those sommeliers, they would go then to the restaurant because they want to meet the person that curates nice photos on the Instagram feed. And they use internet to learn really. They are going to extract information from the internet. They're also very curious in what they buy. And that's where you are going to find the natural Jura lovers that are going to buy Domaine du Miroir for $300 a bottle. And there some of our the clients that we've interviewed, they would fly back to Thailand just to make sure that those six bottles of Domaine du Miroir from the Jura region are in pristine quality when when they arrive in Thailand. That's that's quite funny to see. Then you've got, in Asia, we've got a profile for Hong Kong and a profile for mainland China. In Hong Kong so far, they buy to possess because they can. They buy only through friends. And again, the way they establish trust is by those personal relationships and personal links with people. They're not really interested in vineyards and soils. But really, the famous history or the firm the famous personalities that are linked to the wine. If Napoleon visited your estate or those kind of information, so you know don't talk vineyards and swords to them because they're not that interested compared to other people. And then mainland China, they buy to drink or they buy because they like, they buy only through friends again. And what's interested in mainland China is this this movement towards the end of excessive consumption of alcohol. Where you know they would buy a lot, they would drink a lot, they would get drunk a lot in a in a corporate environment, and we can see that movement on fine wine, which is more drinking to be happy and and drinking for purpose and not just drinking to be drunk. And what was funny is they use internet websites and reviews to ensure the wine exists because there are still so much so much road in mainland China. So I rarely encounter a winemaker that said, well, I've translated my website in Chinese just because I want the consumer to be sure that I exist. But it's actually a real asset for um, Chinese consumer that to make sure that it's a real wine, not made by counterfeiters from anywhere around the world. Does that make sense? I'm quite curious, Peter. Does that make sense to what you have and, and the type of, of segmentation that you've seen in, in, in your Studying in the book that you've just
0: wrote. Yeah, very, very similar for sure. I think, I think they're right along the same path. When you were describing the fine wine consumer and talking about how their knowledge of tasting and, and price awareness might be better than master wine students, I I I just imagine Robert taking the dig at me being a <laughs> MW student, and yeah. and he does this all the time. <laughs> he knows that my tasting is not quite as good as his or other people's. <laughs> so
2: Yeah, and I'm not even talking about highlighting the ability to recognize the wine blind. It's just about, I'm from Burgundy myself, and I tend to not say that too much around fine wine consumers, because then they are going to talk to me about wines that I've never tasted, will probably never be able to afford on, on my own. And and it just so, they know, they know so much about, about wine. And of course, they've got a lot of wine lovers traditional wine lovers have been buying wine for, you know, 25 to 30 years. They also access those wines when they were not that expensive. Mm -hmm. So of course they've got a huge benchmark and they really know the classics. Yeah.
0: And the, the loyalty to merchants. One of the things that I was thinking about when you said that was, I wonder if that shifts a little bit when some businesses or some wineries have more of a direct to consumer model. Cause I think that's true when people are buying primarily through the the, the merchants and the trade, but there's also some level of loyalty, I think, when you're buying direct-to-consumer that may also exist.
2: So that's an interesting question to put in context and geography, mm-hmm. because, I mean, if we want to talk about the regions that produce fine wine and what the fine wine consumers are buying, it's still very classic, mm-hmm. and Bordeaux is still... 70% of the conversation. It was 95, 15 years ago, so it's changing. But they're selling the same amount of wine, it's just they've got yeah, more variety now. Well. But you know, 15 years ago, fine wine was just Bordeaux and a couple of Burgundy. Now there's Bordeaux, Burgundy, and you know, some, some more, but the recent winner of the fine wine diverse, being more and more diverse, is well, Bordeaux is still very much present. Burgundy, of course. And then you've got Italy and Champagne. Mm -hmm. And when you look at those regions, they don't sell direct that much. They're still very much based on a traditional route to market. And what surprised me every time is the very small amount of insights that I get on California. People have tried the Californian iconic wines like most collectors. They've tasted the Harlins of the world, the Screaming Eagle a bit, or maybe more of the recent wines. They've tasted it, but they don't buy so Mm -hmm. much of them. They will have a case of auto. But I think that's where you see really the two different models of fine wine in Europe and fine wine in the US because Mm -hmm. I can't really tell you that based on the insight that we have, direct buying is growing because for those fine wines, the the routes to market are very much similar to what they were before, they buy more online, and they've been buying more online during lockdown and during the different phase of quarantine. They go to a state, like they go, they visit Bordeaux, they visit the wine regions, but they're still buy, buying through the, the wine merchants. And not, not to say that California is, doesn't have a space on the fine wine world, because it certainly has, but the impact it has internationally outside of California I think it's very much different to what you find in California, which is no, absolutely. The, the business models are, are, are really different. And how, how how many you know how much of the fine wine from California are drunk and sold within California? It's a huge percentage. Right. So we right.
0: or within the US more broadly.
2: Yeah. Oh, we, within the US, but even just in 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 mm-hmm. California, and to that extent, we'll see. And again. Very international fine wine of California, and more and more of them are going through the Place de Bordeaux because they, you know, they want to get Mm -hmm. out of that only B2C model and they they choose the roots, which is very similar to the fine wine from Europe,
1: right? So, when we were interviewing in one of our early episodes uh, a fine wine merchant in New York City they were talking about you know essentially the the top tier wines they they were you know they were they're like the banker wines like the wines that you're always going to buy no matter what regardless of price even if those prices go up uh, but there was like another like lower tier that people were buying but as those prices either go up because of allocation prices or market realization supply demand or or even the tariffs when those prices all of a sudden get inflated the the buyer becomes for that are still buying those investable those you know first gross and Grand Cru burgundies are then kind of like changing their mix and i'm curious on what you guys see in terms of the price awareness or how can how these fine wine consumers think about price and does it vary by you know kind of like tiers of wine
2: well the, again they are very price aware what's interesting is that there is no price point per se over which a wine is too expensive. That's always a question that I ask I ask them, when is a wine too expensive? Some of them, they've got a budget for fine wine of the weeks and the fine wine. But again, it depends on the profile because some of them buy to invest as well. Sometimes it's a bit of a mix of to drink and to invest. So there's no limits. And, and if you hear Jamie Ritchie, he will confirm that records are made to be broken and we can't see a limit you how much a bottle of wine can cost. What's interesting is I find that when prices raise, like got more expensive for one established chateau or domain, what changes the people that buy it? So People are not collectors. Are not loyal to a certain estate. That that was a surprise to me. I thought that fine wine lovers will always buy the Aubrion and they will always buy the Petrus, regardless of the year and regardless of the price. Which actually is not true, based on the insight that we've got. They are loyal to a style of wine, so they will go to Bordeaux, for example. They've got a, a preference between the different villages in Bordeaux, but within the actual châteaux, or even within the actual Bordeaux, Village, and and Avergation. They will go depending on on the price and what they feel a good value is. So, and when the price goes above this, those wines continue to be bought, but by another part of the population, if if that makes sense. So if you take Bordeaux, for example, if you take the very traditional UK market, there's a lot of people here, there's a lot of wealthy collectors and drinkers that have bought quite a lot of wine over the 2000, 2001 vintage, for example, that have made quite a lot of money with those wines because the price have increased quite a lot. And then they dropped the market in 2005, 2006, when the prices went crazy, and then the market moved to China. And now, so those wines will continue to be bought, but not by the same person. And why the Bordeaux lovers in the UK was still drinking Bordeaux with the wines that he had or she had on their cellars, they started to explore with other regions. So they started to explore. Burgundy is a bit particular because, of course, the price are very high. And it's also appealed to a very particular profile of collectors. It's, it's not for everyone. And it's a huge vertical. It's really a geek. It's a geek collector wine but they started to explore with Italians and that's based on also on the on the taste profile I've got a lot of people that tells me that the wine of California they're still too powerful for them they're the very different mm-hmm. style of wine and they they feel closer to home in Italy and so the super Toscans are really high they're, they're really developing strongly because similar to Bordeaux similar to Bordeaux and they have that same kind of perceived value like, they were the price of the Bordeaux back in 2000, 2001. And now the, the question is, how is price going to swing back? Because Bordeaux, for example, hasn't, they, they, they haven't lost that traditional consumer in the UK, but they certainly will lose them if, like, for good, if the price continues to increase. I mean, for good, at least in a, in a big volume. I think did I did I answer your question because I <laughs> I thought I moved away a bit from it. No, I think I think you g- gave
1: the overall context to what we were looking for, and uh, yeah, I d- definitely it's, it's interesting to see how Super Tuscan's a new Bordeaux or maybe even Piedmont Barolo's the new Burgundy in some cases, yes. or mm-hmm. even Cote Roti, which is in, you know like another example of a high in demand, very small, Alex, very small production levels.
2: Yes, but that's I mean, in and if you if you that's why also. You know, people are fighting for allocation because the first rule for people to buy the wine is for the wine to be accessible. So, of course, accessibility will impact the way people are buying. But again, because those people are very international, they will find the wine at the price that they feel is the good one around the world and they will have them in store. A lot in London, but they can have them in store in Bond's warehouse around the world, and they can, or they they have several sellers. So, really, if the price is not right in one market, they can go to another, and if the price is not right internationally, they will just move from that wine to another one.
0: And so, your research showed four different types of fine wine consumers. Could you tell us about those categories?
2: Yeah. So, again, we thought that maybe some of the traditional segmentation of consumers couldn't really work when you were in that type of high-level price. But I guess they, they, they're still quite logical. Uh, the first one is the passionate. And based on what we hear from the trade, it's actually this, those four profiles are the, the quite even in terms of how much they represent of their, of their client space. So the first one is the passionate. And again, I've talked a bit about him I'm gonna say him because again it's predominantly male but he's addicted to knowledge. So he's a wine geek he will go to a lot of wine tastings. he wants to meet the master of wine and the people that know that know wines. Mentorship is really important for him because he wants to be better in, in knowing. So he finds mentorship either from master of wine or people in the industry that he considers as knowledgeable but also from his peers. And that's why you've got, you know, the wine clubs and, and people putting together that group of collectors that they drink together so that they can, they can build up knowledge. Of course, he knows the price really, really well and he dedicates a lot of its time. I've got some consumers that dedicate, they've got Excel spreadsheets that, you know, any kind of wine merchant would love to have. Like they're so elaborated, all those spreadsheets to, you know, to manage the sellers, to gather all the information that they get everywhere to compare prices on different websites and they consolidate that in huge database for for their wine. It's quite it's quite interesting to see. Then you've got uh, the status seekers. So their main motivation is you know to buy the label and to belong to a group just by buying that product. And they need the wines needs to be recognised by key influencers. And that notion of influencers in, is interested to to follow because since Robert Parker is not here anymore. That word, you know, really is, is every community of wine lovers will will have his influences. So they can be traditional journalists, but they can be star songs, or they can be even celebrities that people follow. So what, what kind of personality endorses the wine is quite important for them as well. Historical figures or whatever. Then you've got the collector drinkers. They buy and they sell wine. So one of their motivation is actually to make money on the wines most of them to make money so they buy more wine I've, i've i've met very little collectors that were just motivated by the pure amount of money because they don't they don't really need money what they like is the game again they like making money just because that put them in an expert position because they, you know, they put the mm-hmm. good deal, or they knew there was money to be made, and they can buy more wine.
1: So I'm curious if that group would also be the group that helps find, gets in early on a producer, and starts to understand who's going to be the next hot producer. Gets in early, tells everybody about it. Everybody flocks to it. The prices rise. Then they're kind of everybody. It's kind of ubiquitous at the point. And then they're looking for the next kind of rising star. They, it's more of that sense of, are they. Are they looking to discover, be the person who's discovered and introduced their friends and their community to the new hot producers? Is that I was wondering if it was that group.
2: So that would be, a lot of those people would be in the status seekers as well, like to impress and to be seen as influent in their community. So that would be a lot of those people would be in the status seekers. Collector drinkers, they would collect information mostly on vintage for Bordeaux, on producers for Burgundy, but their main motivation there's always, it's difficult sometimes to take people, buy to impress if it's to buy to make money. But mostly the one that we see in traditional market anyway, there it's really like, because I know so much, I've got the knowledge to see that this vintage is underpriced compared to quality. So I'm going to buy, for example, six cases. So I can buy, I can drink three. And then if I'm right, I can sell the other three and buy more wine. So it's, it's really more on this. And then the status seekers will be like, yeah, I found it before everyone else. And I want everybody to know that I find it. And and I'm that kind of trendsetter. And the last one, which is funny, at least for me, because that's a category that I tend to forget, but it's just the affluent. People that are rich and they buy fine wine, just like you and me would buy a thirty euro bottle of wine, well, they just spent hundred and fifty or two hundred euros, so maybe three hundred dollars in, in US price, just because like they've got the money, they don't want to be bothered with ten pound wine.
1: They want to drink the best. Yeah.
2: Yeah, or it's just or it's just like where they shop mm-hmm. they are they've got access to those wines and they might not even I'm not gonna say they might not even know that there's four Pounds, Prosecco, Lidl, because they might know. But I mean, they do not go in those type of environments where you've got the cheap thing.
1: The only non-vintage champagne they drink is Krug. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah, well,
2: yeah. And because they tend to go to high-end hotels and high-end restaurants, and that's that's what they are exposed to.
1: So I'm curious on how you see the age ranges as we, as uh, currently the millennials are turning 40. How how is fine wine... Uh, bought and consumed for that cohort, for that age demographic.
2: So millennials, as as always, um, it's a very interesting conversation to have in the context of fine wine. They are, I and mean, if you take the insights that we get from most merchants, the average, the average consumer is around forty nine. So usually, fine wine consumers are closer to fifty than they are to forty, which is the younger, the youngest millennials. And then, of course, you've got even younger than this. So there are younger consumers in New York, in London or in Asia, but they do represent a small percentage of the customer. I mean, most wine merchants still rely on older consumers to to make most of their money. What I think is interesting with the millennials, regardless of the age and regardless of how much they represent in buying power, is how they've impacted... The rest of the cohort with their mindset. So, what I like about millennials is that millennial mindset and all the attributes that you normally associate with millennials like they want to be uh, considered as individual, they are super demanding, they are super aware, like they don't like BS uh, because they can cut through the noise. Well, they are quite aware of sustainability and what's happening in the world, all of that. Well, if you look at it, that's the case for. The, the the big majority of all the fine wine consumers now, regardless of the age, because the way millennials access information through online, through phones, through apps, through friends, I mean, it's that impacted everyone. And I can't remember exactly the source, but there was a, a stat on social media users age and of course social media was really used by younger people but also for people over 50 as well so I mean that that mindset and that behavior is Kind of all across age group now, which makes traditional segmentation by age slightly irrelevant now when it comes to that.
1: But what I mean, in a lot of times I consider the a lot of the wine industry be, to be somewhat antiquated in its communication strategies. And I'm curious on um, for the fine wines, if the estates and the domains uh, and the chateaus are changing how they Communicate with that group because that group wants to maybe uh, processes information in a different way, or is more connected, or wants that individuality where they will actually want someone to directly connect with them. I'm curious if, if if that has changed, if the communication strategy has changed for that cohort.
2: So, this the study that we referred to. Of course, we ask consumers, so we don't ask wineries, but we can we can walk backwards and 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 look at what we hear from wineries on other on other type of platforms. For sure. People are thinking about the millennials, but either because they are thinking about millennials or because of COVID and, and everything that happened in the, in the last six to seven months. Wineries have changed a lot the way they engage with consumers. Some were quite gradual and talking about the ones that I know best, which is the French wine. What's funny to see is usually it's when people had external people that like non-French people coming on their marketing board that they've moved quicker. (laughs) Maybe having people that have seen other industries than wine or other countries than France that have started to implement that. So, of course, people believe in digital. I mean, even fine wine, very classic. They've, They've invested in digital in different ways of engaging with the consumers. But they... I mean, coming with Bordeaux, for example, and I know it's quite different for California, and that's still the, one of the biggest problems for fine wine is accessibility. I mean, you can discuss and talk online as much as you want, but depending on where you're based, you might not be able to access the wine because just, you know, having the wine stand to your countries or depending on uh, tax and regulation, that might change a lot. So people talk more, but they are limited by the fact that they can't sell direct worldwide or that, you know, depending on different markets, the roots to the wine might be complicated. So for example, one of those things that we've seen during COVID is that all those fine wines wineries starting the wine concierge, uh, the first service is wherever you are based, we are going to tell you where to go to buy our wine. Because just that is, is quite a big, it's difficult for people to access. I mean, you can engage with a Côte Rôtie domain and you have no idea how to find them in your country or in your market.
0: I thought Robert was just positioning for more Instagram lives for, for his uh, wine terroir blog.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, they've been, they've been successful. And I mean, again, we've just started interviewing people for the 2020 study. And of course, we asked them about what COVID changed for them. And for sure, that exposure to wine online. But again, the fine wine consumers are super educated and they've got the means and to have access to information, to travel to the region or to go to wine dinners and talk to some.
0: In your research, you you map out some of the, what I think you called fundamental influences that drive fine wine purchase. Could you explain those to us, please?
2: Well, the, the starting point was, there's a big discussion, is fine wine the same as luxury wine? What is fine wine connected to? Is fine wine connected to art? Robert, you mentioned an agricultural product. Some people will really disagree with that and will tell you that fine wine is a cultural product. And, you know, I've got a group of fine wine producers in France that petition for wine being associated to the Ministry of Culture and not the Ministry of Agriculture because they see fine wine as an art product. Is fine wine a craft? Is fine wine luxury? And the point about that was before all of those categories had very identifiable and identified marketing. You wouldn't market a luxury wine the same way you would market an art-related wine or a, or even as you would market a mass market wine. But now it was just that realization that if you look at how at languages and reference and image that are associated to promote wine and to talk about wine, it's kind of blurry now because luxury is have been the rules and the borders of, of luxury have been changed by mass market or mass tige market, and now you see wines that are selling for twenty pounds or euros or dollars that are using the codes of a of a more expensive product. You see um, art that was really reserved to a minimum amount of wineries using art and that kind of. Know, fine wine is an art kind of language, which is now used at the same time that they're using the craft argument. So that was just again we evolving in a very blurry environment when it comes to positioning a wine on the market.
0: Definitely. How do consumers generally hear about fine wines?
2: Well, the first reason that they always mention is family consumption. So you know, the people in their family or their friends were drinking wine, so they got exposed to it and. I mean, at least in Europe, that's by far the biggest reason for people to be exposed to wine is that familiar consumption and work as well. And, and that's quite a lot of time what I have in the US as well. like They've been exposed to fine wine because the, you know they were going to fine restaurants with clients and they had to know a bit about the wine list so they could navigate a bit in this. And again, people being 50 now, their buying power grew up with the price of wine. So they were able to access fine wine well. Think back 30 years ago, there wasn't that much price difference between a fine wine and the normal price. So they were able to access fine wine quite easily by entering the job market and and making good money and buying wine as they go along. So I guess that's how they've they've built it. They've all mentioned mentorship, which is usually wine merchants. So the first wine merchant that have opened their horizon that keep on, you know, thinking about them, about tasting or new arrival that could be of interest for them. What's funny now is they can be online. I mean, there's a lot of online specialized websites that have built their customer base on that kind of unique one to one customer service. Like, what's your taste? And let let us Teach you, well, let us continue to educate you and present you with wine that could be of interest. And a lot of the international, not European, so extra European population, it, it was some, again, restaurants, they are they are really interested by food. And because they are big foodies, then wine usually comes after. And, and they've mentioned some are, are as key people to establish the interest on wine. Travel? So they've traveled to uh, winemaking countries and they fall in love with it. And then because they're quite geeky or they they become addicted to knowledge, they continue.
1: Sounds very similar to how many people would even discover non-fine wine. Yes,
2: yes. But I guess because they are wealthier at the beginning, again, they get exposed to... Maybe earlier. More expensive wine. yeah. Yeah, earlier. Which is just to say that I think that's how the millennials also are going to be different. We're still working on how the millennials are going to be when most of the cohort is going to be in a similar age of buying. And I think one of the biggest differences will be this, is that if you take the person which is between 50 or 60 now, and it's a fine wine collector, super educated, wealthy, got a huge seller, most of his knowledge were based from 25 years ago prices. So again, I had that that funny discussion with one of the collectors two days ago about how many Romane Conti and Latache he had on, in his cellar, and I was like, "Gosh, how can you like how can you afford them? He said, "Well, I bought them in 2000, and it wasn't even that recent. It was 2005 or something, and he bought them 420 euros a bottle. So when it was that kind of price, people could." Grew up very quickly in terms of knowledge, because when you're exposed to fine wine, you I and mean, everyone can taste the difference with normal wine like there's a benchmark of quality, really the wine is mm-hmm. better, right like there's more quality, there's more to it, and again, there's emotion that people might not feel with regular wines. so when you've been exposed to that and you can afford easily them, you don't you don't go back but millennials today i mean you and me, uh, even if we are wine geeks, the way we are going to build our knowledge of those benchmarks is going to be very much different. Because unless we are part of those very, very tiny, maybe 0.0% of the population that can afford a home a contino, we might never taste them. So that's one of the biggest challenges for millennials, I guess, now, and how they are going to differ from fine wine lovers from that are now active on the market, is that incapacity to buy a lot of what is considered finest wine now. And I don't know Peter if you know that that joke around you know, between the banker and the master of wine and they they both wanted to access fine wine and be able to buy and to drink fine wine. So there's two guys and one goes being a banker because you want to be able to buy it and the other one goes for the master of wine because that's the only way you'll be able to access it because having that kind of knowledge so yeah I think that's going to be a big challenge for millennials uh, to bring them in uh, in, in the entire landscape
1: of fine wine just because they won't be a huge majority of won't be able to afford them right no it definitely sounds like a, an issue for uh for people to get that exposure having to taste getting opportunity to taste things like that I'll, I'll be in that i'll be <laughs> I'm looking i'm gonna make friends with all those uh, that small one percent <laughs> that can afford them they can, okay. That's, <laughs> that is my strategy so every time we have a guest we ask them to do a wrap-up where we talk we ask them to predict a lasting trend And a fizzling fad. And for you, we'd love for you to think about with regards to the fine wine consumers, what do you think is a lasting trend for that group? And what do you think is a fizzling fad?
2: Uh, lasting trend for sure for me is going to be more and more diversity in what fine wine is and the region they can be produced. So again, border is still going to be big, but Italy, Burgundy, Champagne, any other region, like every collector now agrees then most countries in the world can produce fine wine. They might not like all of them, but that time where you know people were like, "If it's not a border, I'm not drinking it." That's that's surely over, and that's that's here to stay. And I'd like to say, I'd like to see the diversity component of fine wine taking even more, like a bigger understanding with also people being more diverse in people that sell wine, people that talk about wine, people that are represented in the wine world. I mean, if we can continue on. On bringing more diversity, more women, more people of color, more people with a different background, people with different language that will also challenge the language that we use to talk about wine. I think that that can be a lasting trend uh, that would also help bringing more millennials and younger consumers into the world of wine. Over the last few months, we've seen even the finest wine going online with Instagram Live, with webinars, with all of this. Uh, because, of course, people can't travel. And I don't think that's going to be a fizzling fad. I don't think that trend is going to go away entirely. I think it's going to be mitigated. Again, the swing of the pendulum, we went very far on on digital and online during uh, the lockdown period. And I think people are going to find a way to have hybrid systems. So winemakers are going to be on Instagram live still, even when we are back to normal. But I think they will have more time to think it through, to prepare, to really integrate that into the communication strategy and really bring value and content into that online presence. Everything has been a bit improvised because we had to occupy the space. And maybe one of the trends, which is my go away, is that let's get rid of all the middlemen because people understand more and more what I've seen in the last six months is people revisiting the value of the middleman and of course direct to consumer has its value on certain market on certain wine to some extent but fine wine to achieve the fine wine status in a way is that's defined by the export market if you're only present in your country it's difficult to call yourself a fine wine because it's the export market that gives you this status and if you want to be present in the export market you have to have middleman you can't go direct everywhere so I think with all that noise online that was created the last six months, people are going to curate better the middleman they are working with, and they are going to curate better the the content that they put out there. Really, in order to create value and to differentiate themselves from each other, was that a good answer?
1: That was a good answer. Yeah. I like it. I like the the combination of the pendulum swung, and we're going to go back and find some kind of equilibrium in terms of part digital, and we won't go as and more preparation, and then also being selective of who you work with because they, they add so much value. I think those are, those are two great uh, things that will change as we, as we get back to some form of normalcy. Pauline, thank you so much. This was very interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank
2: you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast until next time. Shame. Cheers.